Okay, I have, last week, we got in an interesting discussion about the law, the Old Testament law of Moses as it relates to the believer, and I, at Renee Simmerman's suggestion, have printed off a number of copies of two chapters from a book. Um, the book is a fish thrift. Say that with me, fish thrift. A fish thrift is a book of a collection of essays in honor of somebody. If you ever seen like you know essays in honor, so this is they were trying to honor John um, Charles Feinberg no, in honor of S. Lewis Johnson, and so Feinberg got together this fish thrift, and what they did is they got scholars, biblical conservative faithful scholars, to write on key issues on both sides, and the focus being continuity discontinuity. And one of the topics they dealt with is the law. And so, you have a, so in this packet are two separate chapters, so you can read good arguments on both sides of the issue. One coming from a perspective that sees a continuity between the law of Moses and the law of Christ, seeing Jesus as presenting the same thing. There is no difference. There is no distinction. Jesus is simply reapplying, expanding the law of Moses. And then Doug Moo writing an article, the law of Moses and the law of Christ, seeing distinction, seeing, seeing even though they say many of the same things, and Jesus would be the fulfillment of the other. They are not one and the same. And if you want a copy of that, let me, can you pass this out to anyone who'd like a copy? And if we run out, um, I can have some more next week for you. But, um, and while our wonderful ushers ush, mm, I will uh, open up for any questions or discussion. Um, I want to make one, one point um, that occurred to me, and I want to clarify. One of the things that I love about Christ's church is it is not set up as a monarchy. Um, that God, uh, turn, turn to Titus chapter 1. Um, now, sadly, I think there are many churches run as a, as a monarchy. Um, and we've seen, if you're aware of the Christian news, we've seen the collapse of some churches that were clearly built as monarchies. What I mean by that is, I don't think the Lord intended any single human under-shepherd to rule a church. Um, and I would be terrified, and I will forget terrified, I would not accept the position of senior pastor, as Daniel calls me. Um, no, it's good to keep, no, no, I think there are certain things where it's healthy to constantly, lest you get puffed up, so he just calls me, and I bless it. I say, it's wonderful, senior pastor. Well, of course, there is no senior pastor in the Bible. So um, it doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it an innovation on our part. And so I think it's helpful to periodically, I think it's periodically helpful to poke that with a stick. Um, but, but in uh, Titus, let me get there myself, um, Paul tells Titus why he left him in Crete. Verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. So there's something lacking in the churches. There's a deficiency in the churches. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So there we get the plurality of elders. When Paul um, is on his way to Jerusalem, the book of Acts, he assembled the Ephesian elders. And so what we see is that the churches are governed by... Elders, plural. And the beautiful thing of that is twofold. One, no one can be an elder without being recognized by the body. So the Lord gives the criteria and then says, hey, where you see that in men, appoint, recognize. We don't, I had a professor used to say, we don't appoint elders as much as we point them out. 
In other words, we're not investing them with authority. We're recognizing the work of the Spirit and the authority of the Lord's granted them. And that also then means that every individual elder is subject to the plurality of the elders. So I need to listen and obey the plurality of the elders. I, I'm not, there's nobody above the law. There's nobody who is a king who simply commands down, who is not also under authority in this world. I mean, we're all under Christ's authority, but who is not also under the authority of other men in the church. So, so there's no, everyone is called to submit to the elders in the church insofar as they're leading the church. I don't, after talking about king, 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 I didn't want anyone to think for a moment that I think I'm a king. Um, if, if I start to, my wife sets me straight. It's, it's good. Um, so, okay, that was my one, one caveat I want to say. So questions either from last week's discussion on the law or from this week's discussion of king. And Jamie Cook will kick us off. So would you mind unpacking uh, Mary's lineage a little again? Uh, you alluded to that. Sure. And I, I know I, I, at one point I'd heard it, but mind revisiting that? Yeah, yeah. Let's go to, uh, let's go to Luke 3. Um, I will only give this a few minutes simply because I spent the whole message going through it. But I'll, give you the, I'll, I'll try to answer your question in a short order and then um, for further uh, detail, you can go back on the podcast to, to there. Well, the first point to make is it's obvious this isn't Joseph's lineage. Um, and it's obvious that, that Matthew and Luke disagree. And they disagree in ways that cannot be accidental. Some people want to try to write off the, the, the apparent discontinuities between the Gospels as these are just bungling fishermen. I'll give you one example of where they, that, that can't be the case. I think everyone in this room, tell me, who's David's son who becomes a king? Solomon's not in the genealogy in, Matthew, in Luke 3. There's no way on earth Luke, with all the research he did, made a mistake. If what he was trying to do is bluff, if he was trying to fake it till he made it, if he was trying to bluff a genealogy, there's no way he's missing Solomon. No way on earth. No. So, so such a suggestion is ludicrous. Given the amount of attention to detail, the dates of emperors and years, getting everything else right, there's no way he's bungling Solomon. No, it's, it's a different genealogy. So the key here is how you translate the Greek. And I, and I hate doing the Greek magic tricks. But basically, it, it really, in Greek, there is no parentheses. So the writers put the parentheses, the translators put the parentheses in where they think they should go. So if you read it a little differently, um, you get this. Jesus, verse 30, 23, when he began his ministry, he was about 33s of age, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, um, of Heli. So if you move the as was supposed to mean um, <clears throat> of Okay, hold on, I gotta remember how this goes. This is this being the son, as was supposed of Joseph. Yeah, if you put Joseph within the parentheses, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, of Healy, and the assumption would then be he's not the son of Joseph, we're dealing with the other side. You're not normally naming women in genealogies, it's very uncommon. In fact, Luke Matthew's genealogy only names three, and they're all explicitly intentional because he picks the three. Um, black sheep of the Jewish family. He, he picks the Canaanite prostitute 
um, Rahab. He picks Bathsheba, and he picks Ruth the Moabitess. And so Matthew only includes three women in the genealogy, and everyone is to remind the Jews to maybe be a little less proud of their genealogy and heritage. Luke, so the assumption is basically that it's just assumed. If, you, if we've discounted Joseph, then which line are we going through? So if you simply put Joseph within the brackets, as was supposed of Joseph, then the Jewish mind or the, the mind of that day would assume we're going down Mary's side. Healy would then be understood to be her father. And we're tracking through male descent the... The, uh, the genealogy of Jesus. It's, it's either that or this is an absolutely abysmal attempt to fake a genealogy that doesn't even get Solomon right. Um, and given how much Luke gets right elsewhere, it's the only possible explanation. And if you switch it over, I think it starts to make more sense. Like it's not such a, such a difficulty. But anyway, that's, that's the, the five-minute version on, on Mary's genealogy. Elsa has a question. Wonderful opportunity for me to drink some tea. Thank you. Could I you... sometimes wonder how the Jews are the chosen people and they didn't get tea. Seriously, I don't. Yeah, they're mysteries. They're mysteries. Okay, yes. Um, or coffee. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like a runner-up prize. Ishmael gets coffee. It's called avoidance. Yeah, avoidance. What? Deliberate avoidance of the question. Okay, now go. Yes, sorry. It's like, no birthright, but you get coffee. I almost think that's kind of a fair deal. I don't know. Coffee? Birth? Yeah, okay. Go. The Turks, you know, the, the Arabs big coffee. That's the explanation. Okay, sorry. Go. I'm done. A yawn is a silent scream for a cup of coffee. That's what they say. Yeah. Excellent. So um, how does one explain, um, what is a good way to explain to some of these sects that the, the only begotten son of God doesn't mm. mean he was created. Sure. Um, there's some debate uh, over the translation of monogenes, which is what we get only begotten from. I think only begotten is actually a bad translation. Um, part of the debate is over the mono is clear enough, unique, only one. And is gene coming from ganao to beget, or is it coming from ginemai to become? Um, and so they're not entirely sure what the root of the Greek is. But it doesn't mean only begotten. Go to Hebrews 11. It, I think it better means unique, one-of-a-kind son. And Hebrews 11 is a good demonstration. It's, it's a word we don't see used very much in classical Greek. So as we're trying to figure out what does monogenes mean, um, it's trickier because it's not a term bandied about by Greek classical literature. But in Hebrews 11, we get a usage of it. There's not many usages of it in the New Testament, but it excludes only begotten as a meaning. Uh, let me get there myself. Hebrews 11. So in Hebrews 11, we get this. Um, it's uh, Abraham offering up Isaac. Um, it's starting in 13. Um, no, not starting at 13. Starting at 7? No. 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of a place that he was to, to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that was the foundations, was designer and builder were God. 
Uh, let me jump ahead a bit more. Where's he sacrificed Isaac? 17. 17. Bingo. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, whom he had received the promise, was in the act of offering up his monogenes. Now, of course, Isaac is not the only son of Abraham. Who, who's another son? We named, he got coffee. Ishmael. But he is the unique one of a kind son. So the focus is not on this is my only birthed son, rather this is my unique son. So the notion of generation and therefore all of the sort of aspects like as though God somehow procreated with somebody are removed. Jesus is the unique one of a kind son. He's not, so even though only begotten is so well known, because of course the King James went that way with it. And, you know, we're not terribly certain what the word comes from because it's not found many places. Hebrews 11 makes it clear it cannot mean only birthed. It's unique. It's one of a kind. In one respect, we are sons and daughters of God, right? I mean, the angels are called sons of God. So um, in that sense, it's that Jesus is the one of a kind, unique son of God. So that, that's the short answer. Okay. Anything about kingdom, kingship, and that stuff? Or we're just, we're all good, we're on board for today. We like kings. Kings are groovy and great. Lee. M microphone for Lee Carpenter. Oh, no. Oh, it's a blank. Still. Still. Someone's pulling over to the side of the road to fill in their sheet right now. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> my question is uh, three part B and part five, which is the blank. Hailed Jesus as king. The crucifixion. That's what I put. Yeah. How can a thing hail? Okay, that's okay. We'll go with that. <laughs> maybe, maybe proved or okay. in indicated or yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah, Supported. Yeah. yeah good. I'll, I'll cons next week when I'm working my notes, Lee. I will consult. Run it. Yeah. No. No. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, what was the other one that someone said I should should have fixed or changed? Um, uh, what was it? It was um, Stacy Moore and uh, Amy Moore were discussing that I had father as a blank twice. They thought that was a little odd. And couldn't I come up with something different there? Um, look, I'm, I'm a weak man. And I'm... Okay. <laughs> other, other questions or thoughts? Okay, Jim. Oh, he's got. Uh oh, Jim has a thought. If not, we're gonna to go to John one. <laughs> Should we just skip? My no, no. Do your thought, Jim. Do your thought. It's not about coffee, but um, sometimes when I interact with unbelievers, um, one of the summations of my conversation will be: if you want to be in the kingdom, you'd better bow to the king. Right. Simple as that, which is, in some forms, a presentation of the gospel, which presupposes that you will not bow to a king that you do not believe in on the front end. And as we know, you will not obey a king outside of his grace giving you the ability as a fallen human being to do so. But um, So that's just a thought. Sometimes I... I will use that when I'm talking to it. I'm, it's so simple. You want to be in the kingdom, 
you better bow to the king. Yeah, that's that's a fair fair point. Anything else? Okay, I'm going to dismantle a beloved verse. Let's go to John 1. Um, One of the... Okay, I'll ask you. We'll do a little survey. What is, in actual point of fact, the predominant way Christians describe their conversion? They... I wish it was born again. That'd be wonderful. No, no, Jim, Jim, Jim. You're answering if I said biblical ways to describe it. I said, what's the predominant actual way people describe? I accepted Jesus. And if you want to take accepted Jesus, the strong, there is no accepting Jesus in the New Testament. That is entirely alien. However, you do have receive in John 1. So the predominant, I think, I would submit the predominant terminology used is accept. And I don't care about the terminology Oh, I sort of do. I would be much more comfortable if we were using biblical terms to describe biblical things. But what I really care about is what we mean by it. Now, my concern is that accept can sound really passive. The postman comes, he has a package, and you just, okay, accept it. Um, you know, I, I, I give you the refund, and you accept the check. And, you know, and so we can get this very passive notion. And passive notions can be at odds with you got a king. You're bowing the knee, right? So because I, su- I su- submit that the, the best explanation for how accept became the predominant phrase is because it is one step removed from receive, receiving Jesus, which is a biblical term. It's only used, I think, in John 1, but that's fine. It doesn't need to be used eight times. You, you want a, a challenge? What's it say in Colossians 2? Okay, it is used multiple times. Excellent. No, no, keep me honest. Fantastic. Fantastic. And, but, and it used once is sufficient. Like, it's biblical. It's a biblical way to talk about conversion, receiving Jesus as Lord. Interesting. But let's go to John 1. Um, and the Greek word for receive, similar to the English word, has a weak and strong usage. So let me show what I mean by weak and strong usage. There's receive is in receiving the package. The UPS guy comes to the door, you receive the package. Then I can talk about a wedding reception. Right? It's a little more active, wedding reception. Um, what type of reception did you receive when you, when you went there? How did they receive you? And that's, of course, the usage John's talking about. So let's, and he talks about people who didn't receive, and then he talks about people who did. And I think by considering that briefly, it'll help explain what receiving Jesus in John's economy looks like. So in John 1, we read, verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people, that's inserted, it's literally just his own ones, did not receive him. But of course, they did a lot of positive things. What does John mean they didn't receive him? They said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Jews. They, they wanted to make him king in John 6. They're going to try to take him by force and make him king. Um, what, what does it mean in John? What did the Jews fail to do that can be said to not receive him? Because he's then going to turn around and say, but to everyone who does receive him. So I think the beginning point of this is, the Jews failed to do something. His own people failed to receive him, whatever we're going to take that to mean. But those who did, 
He gives the right to become children of God. So we want to make sure we're doing what the Jews of Jesus' day failed to do. That, that's, I think, the first point in my argument is the Jews failed to receive him. Well, no, but see, we're individualistically saved. You're not saved because you're part of a family. That's, that's part of it. But what did corporate Israel fail to do? They did not receive him as... In other words, they were looking for a king and a savior and a deliverer who came and said, good job holding the fort, guys. I got it from here. And they got a king who said, you brood of vipers. Oh, he didn't say brood of vipers. But he does speak to them like, you need head-to-toe cleansing. You're wicked, and you need forgiveness. You need, in fact, to come out publicly and receive a washing to indicate how clean you are and how much cleansing you need. And you need to look to me for that. And you need to, instead of being proud and exalted and proud of who you are, you need to humble yourself. Blessed are those who mourn, who hunger for righteousness, who, who are mistreated. Blessed are those who are hungry now, for they'll be filled right. So Jesus has a, you've got to accept my estimation of you and my estimation of your problem. Um, and they, they did not receive him in that respect. Jesus, if you'll go throughout the Romans, we'll totally vote and be on board for you then. And when they thought that's what he was going to do, right after the feeding of the 5,000, they're like, okay, this guy can, I mean, an army marches on his stomach, right? It, it, it moves by feet. This is a guy who can feed an army every day, just keep making bread. Let's, let's make him king. Um, they failed to receive him in the, on his terms, in other words. They, they failed to receive him and his estimation of him. And whenever they got a whiff of what he thought of them, they tried to kill him. So that's what happens in Luke Four, he goes to his home synagogue, and he says, hey, it's fulfilled in your hearing. And as they begin to understand that he, his next examples, he uses um, of, of not many prophets, not many lepers were healed except Naaman. Now, Naaman's a Gentile, right? And um, Elijah goes to the Syrophoenician widow. Um, she's not a Jew. And as he points out, basically, you're the blind to his hometown, you're the poor, you're the slaves, and you got to recognize that you're on no better footing than a Gentile, uncircumcised general like Naaman or a, or a widow, a Gentile widow, that you're just in, in need of God's grace and just as worthy of God's grace as them. When that clicked, they tried to kill him then and there, right? But as long as Jesus is feeding people and doing miracles, and <laughs> they loved it. So... All I'm trying to point out is that John gives us a contrast in verse 12 um, and 11, 11 and 12. His own did not, his own failed to do something, but to as many as did receive him. And so really the question is, what type of reception are you giving Jesus? I, I would put it. And so I, as you think it through, it's what the Jews failed to do. Okay, now to any who will do that, he gives the right to come sons and daughters of God. So I, I, I think then it's a, probably a bit stronger than accept. I, I, I really accept bugs. Now, people may mean biblical and true things with accept. Again, I don't want to fight over words. If you mean what the Bible means by believe or repent and believe, with accept, more power to you, that's great. I suspect it's drifting into weaker and weaker territory and less and less active territory. It sort of seems that way to me. Um, so anyway, that's my little aside. Um, but I like your notion, like... <laughs> You're going to bow to this king. Maybe it's because your knees are broken with a rod of iron. You're going to bow to this king. Far better to do it willingly now than 
in, in brokenness later. But yeah, every tongue will confess. I mean, that's one another thing. Jesus' victory over his enemies is total. Um, I'll sometimes you get the impression from people they think hell is filled with rebels cursing. If we just get out of there, hell is broken and defeated. They're gnashing their teeth. There is not a single rebel anywhere in the universe once Jesus is fully enthroned. They're still his enemies, but they're not actively resisting him. They're completely coward and broken people. Um, there is no pocket of rebellion for, for King Jesus. He is an absolute sovereign. Every knee bows, every tongue confesses. And Paul's emphasis in heaven and on earth or under the earth is intentionally making it absolutely expansive. The devil himself will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hitler will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will. But not everyone is going to be happy about it. <laughs> right? Okay, questions, thoughts? Are we still just kind of thousand yards staring at it? Okay. Ooh, Lee Carpenter. Use the microphone, though. Well, continuing on on uh, verse 12 of John there, it says... Uh, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name. Yes. Now, see, that, that's, that's an interesting phrase, believed in his name. Tell yes. us, what does that mean? Well, it's in, it's almost the, the prepositions upon. You're placing your faith on something. And Jesus' name is a good way of summarizing who he is and like what he has done. It's, it's his character, it's his being. But Jesus isn't a magic word. I mean, I mean it's just an illustration. If... Uh, if you think that chair is Jesus and you call it Jesus, believing in that chair will not save you, right? Um, so char- chair, his name is summarizing his characters. One of the reasons why the altered Jesus of Mormonism won't save, he's not God. Um, he's the brother of the devil. He's just an exalted being. The, the fact that they call this fiction Jesus is irrelevant. So when you talk about his name, it's, it's tying it to the true Jesus. It's tying it to the true character. Your name is an expression of who and what you are. So then you can start filling in categories. He's the only son, unique son of the Father. He is, and even in John's prologue, he's filling in who Jesus is, right? So it's kind of like his titles and who would we describe him? Because his name, what is it a secret word? I mean, it's such a kind of, you know what I mean? Right. No, it, his name, again, gets back to his character, authority, purpose. So you're praying for things in Jesus' name. You're in his, according to his purposes and plan. So his name, he gets given a name in Philippians that's above all names. And later, actually, there is a secret name. He has a name that's too wonderful, and no one knows it but him. And yet, in Revelation, tattooed as king of king and lord of lords. But see, even there, the name is part of title. It's, it's getting to function and who he is. So believing in Jesus' name is tying up on that in the same way of praying according to his name is his person and his purpose and his will. Believing in that as opposed to a magic set of phonemes and letters. Um, I mean, I, I meet people who get really hung up on this. Because, of course, no one in Jesus' day pronounced his name Jesus. They either would have called him something like Yeshua Right, or if they were pronouncing the Greek, it would be Iesus. Um, so Jesus, as a connection of phonemes and sounds, is entirely foreign. I don't think it matters a bit. 
you know what I mean? But I, no, there's some people you go online and it's Yahushua or something. It's just like they're really hung up on pronunciation. And uh, that's not, you're missing the point if you think that's the issue. But your name is character. Just, just a representation of who he is, of all he is. We and, use the representation of I care about my name and my reputation. He's got a good name in this town. He's got a bad name in this town. That's starting to get at what we're talking about. Um, less, well, what is his name? You know, Johnson, Jim. No, 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 no. It's, um, it's a summation of identity. Does that, mean, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, everything he is and does. I mean, p- part of the whole reason of writing the Gospels, let me tell you about him, is John saying. You gotta, he puts it up front. It's really important you believe in his name. Now let me tell you about him and fill that in with some, some content. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Okay. We got 10 minutes, folks. Anything else? Yes, Naomi. And I do have one other topic I want to go down if we run out. Go, Naomi. This doesn't exactly have anything to do with what we were talking about, but... (laughs) That is a very uh, encouraging segue, Naomi. (laughs) But I was wondering if you could talk about um, the issue of free will and how we have free will. I know you'd love this question. (laughs) How we have free will if God knows the future. I'm taking a philosophy class. I'm taking, here, literally, we did a four weeks on this a couple years ago. Um, I will give you a two-minute answer. So I would encourage you to go back. Pastor Daniel and I did four weeks on election and predestination, sovereignty of God, free will. Um, In particular, you want the second message in that series on election. Um, The short version is it all depends on what your definition of free will. So Martin, Martin Luther writes, the bondage of the will, arguing with Erasmus of Rotterdam, and then Jonathan Edwards writes on the freedom of the will, and they're both saying the same thing. Um, Luther, so here's, here's the issue, and I'll give you my short version. You have free will insofar as nothing outside of you, nothing outside of you forces you against your will to do anything. You have freedom, and that's volunteerism. You volunteer. Everything you do, you do voluntarily. Your will says, yeah. Even when someone comes with a gun to your head and says, your money or your life... You volunteer that choice, whether you try to bust a karate move or you hand over your wallet, and you assent willingly to it. You, you assent willingly to it. There's never a point where your will says, I want to go left, and something outside of you says, no, you're going right. Okay? So volunteerism. So freedom being, you get to do what you want. Now, that's what Edwards is saying. I absolutely believe that, um, which is why talking about people as robots or puppets is nonsense. No, there is nobody articulating a puppet theology Robot theology, okay? Now, Luther, when he talks about the bondage, is saying, yes, the will can do whatever it wants, but because of the corruption of sin, all it wants is sin. Um, That's the rub. So I would say the issue, no one is arguing for, I don't want to do it, but I can't help do it. The real issue is, why does the will want what it wants? Why does the will desire what it desires? Everybody, I think, agrees. You get to do what you want. You get to follow your desires. I think the Bible insists the inclinations of the heart are only evil continually, um, that no one seeks good, Romans 1. No one does good. Um, and so, yeah, you, yeah, the lion, here's the best example I got, and we're done with this. Lion's in the cage. It's really hungry, and they f- put a big appetizing plate of straw. 
in there with them. Now, in one sense, the lion is entirely free to eat the straw. There is absolutely nothing outside of the lion stopping the lion from eating the straw, right? He'll never do it. He'll starve to death because he will never want to eat the straw. But you'd be hard-pressed. That, that, that is a... Well, forget the cage. The only reason you need a cage is there needs to be no other food source. He's on a desert island with straw, okay? And... Because I'm about to say he's free, but it's hard to say the lion's free when he's in a cage. Lion's on a desert island with no animals. It's just vegetation, and he will starve to death. But it's not because he's bound. He's free. He just can't ever want to eat straw. Likewise, you can put steaks in front of a sheep all day, and it will starve to death, right? Um, That is, according to Edwards Luther, according to me, what the Bible teaches man's problem as regards to freedom. He can do whatever he wants, The real question is, what is the moral state of man after the fall, such to him wanting righteousness, such as him wanting Jesus? And so that really is where the debate comes down to, is the depravity of man. If you think there's still some good left in man, there's a lot of bad, but there's some good. Now there's some part of him that might actually want righteousness. And if you think that... um, that no, all of man's will and all of man is stained by sin and corrupted, then now we're saying, okay, there's no part of him that would want Jesus, just like there's no part of the lion that would want straw. He's going to need some new desires. He's going to need some new affections before he'll ever choose Jesus. That's the debate of free will. That's the two-minute version, okay? Can I ask one more, sorry, one more thing? Follow does that, does that mean yeah. we live in a state of hard determinism? Does that mean he's in a state of hard determinism? Mm. Yes and no. No, no, let me, no, no, give me a simple example. If God is omniscient, then from one vantage point, everything is determined. Because, of course, it has to be as he knows it will be. Right? Um, but I'd also argue that if you take naturalism to its extent, where everything is a natural cause, you end up with a form of hard determinism. And, and, and so in every sense, no matter which vantage point you take, there's a sense that that happens. Um, you, you will do what you will do. You will think what you will think. You will choose what you will choose and not other. We, not having access to that omniscience, experience life, and my experience certainly is I'm making choices. The Bible treats us as if we're moral agents making choices. We're open to persuasion. We're open to warnings and threats. We're open to appeals and promises of reward, which is how the Bible interacts with us. So sure, from God's point of view, he knows the end from the beginning, and there's no possibility it will be other than he knows. If someone wants to say, well, that's determinism, okay. Um, It doesn't do much to change my experience of life, but that is all I've got time for on that right at this moment, okay? I want to take a minute just to talk about authority in general, Um, I, I think we... Oh, Connie! Go, go Connie. You, absolutely, Connie, go. Go, go. Oh. So in particular, um, someone to be up there with her. Okay. And that's up at Mercy. What? Yeah. 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 At Mercy. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah, Connie's also, she's been in regular touch with them, and she sees someone. Would you be open for someone texting you or contacting? I'm just thinking if people want to go, they might want to make sure that they're not tripling up, but they're spreading the coverage out, and it might be helpful for someone to run points saying, actually, someone's going to be there in the morning. We could use someone in the afternoon or something. So, so if you guys could possibly be point people in that, that'd be great, because I know you're already... I know you're already very much involved in that. Okay. Okay. I just want to make my, my final statement. I've got five minutes. Is this. Um, we live in a fallen world, and we are very suspicious of authority, and are frequently for good reasons. At every level, we've seen um, the abuses of authority. We've seen untrustworthy parents to children, untrustworthy husbands to wives, untrustworthy governments to their people. Um, history is certainly littered with accounts of that. Um, but in addition to that, and that's what we're going to turn to for why we don't like authority, the very nature of the fall is we don't like being told what to do. And this side of the cross where Christ is redeeming authority um, and the New Testament commands, we, we need to view all, and I think here's as Christians the way we view authority, and, here, and it's, it's challenging, but all authority is mediated authority. It's given out by God the Father. And he, in every one of his instructions to people under authority, makes that vertical connection in place. Children obey your parents in the Lord. Not because the parents are necessarily worthy of honor. Some of them aren't. But because God's worthy of honor. And he says, I want you to go honor those people. And likewise to, to wives, to husbands, right? As unto the Lord. First, I mean, not first, Ephesians 5. And then to the government, Caesar, probably Nero is in charge, and Paul's calling him the minister of the Lord for their good. So it's servants to their masters work heartily as unto the Lord. So in every instance, we're to be told, our God who is good, and our God who is deserving of all honor, and our God and King who is deserving of all obedience and fealty and loyalty, he says, because of him, I want you to honor and serve these people. And that's what we've got to keep in front of our eyes. Um, that, that God is redeeming authority. If you find yourself in a position of authority as a parent, as, as, as a governor, as a leader in the church, as, as a husband, then we're getting models of servant leadership of what it's supposed to look like. But um, we, we need to be very cautious of our hardwired grumbling at authority. It, it's not good. It's not godly. It's not righteous. And with social media constantly begging us, tell us what you think. Especially with it being shocking, social media, right? You know, tell us your disgust and your outrage. Um, voice and vent it. We've got to be very careful. Um, we have models in the New Testament and the Old Testament of civil disobedience. And they're always respectful. You go to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Daniel, under, under King Nebuchadnezzar. And they absolutely, civil disobedience, I will not bow down to your statue. O king, live forever. Not, I'm out in a protest and we're going to burn down Babylon. No, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're bold, they're firm, and they're respectful. You have the apostles in the New Testament commanded not to preach in Jesus' name. And they say, whether it's right for us to obey you or obey God is for you to decide. We cannot help but obey the name. But there's none of this, like, you know, there's none of that. Um, and so... We, we, we need to be chastened in our revulsion of authority. We're ashamed of it. We hate it. We don't like it. We're embarrassed when we have it. I mean, I, even at my college, student life would come out, and you could tell they were embarrassed there were rules. 
No, it was clear. He's like, well, guys, we've got these rules, and I know they're kind of still, because, of course, the board of directors made the rules, and then student life's got to sort of sell them, administer them. And I kept like, well, don't be embarrassed of the rules. I mean, I'd come from military school. They didn't have rules, trust me. And yet they were, oh, I know, you know. And it's like, no, there's rules. It's fine. There's authority in place. It's okay. It's good. That's fine, you know? Um, and so we need to... to Embrace it biblically because of who God is and, and not simply fall in step with the world that it, every place says, don't tread on me or you're going to get it, you know, right? Um, that, is, that is the antithesis of the biblical uh, command to deal with authority, even when you have to resist it, even when you have to disobey it. It is never, you better watch out. It's, oh, king live forever. No, it's respectful. Okay, on that note, we got to go. God bless. Have a good day.